Coming up, Cybercast Oregon, a podcast about the ins and outs of technology security, explored through personal stories, how-to guides, and expert advice. Today's show, online reputation management in the face of cyber threats. Any business owner knows online reputation has clout. It's a lifeblood of many companies with positive feedback or negative press always tipping the scales. So it's not surprising there are no shortage of ways, tools, platforms, and methods to try to highlight helpful content and minimize the bad. But the same technology that connects us to the world creates access points back at us. And not everything following our virtual footsteps is friendly. So what can businesses do to stay safe and alert in this age of reputation-damaging cybersecurity threats? And what can be done if those defensive measures fail? Great questions, and we have answers. This is Cybercast Oregon on Portland Radio Project. Hello, this is Cybercast Oregon, and I am your host, Kedma O. Oh. I am the director for the Small Business Development Center, and I support the 19 centers around cybersecurity. Today, we are looking at ways cyber attacks can cripple business reputations. But first, we're going to step back and understand from a big picture standpoint what online reputation management means in today's digital first world. To kick off this conversation, I'm joined now on the show by two experts. Kent Lewis, founder of Anvil Media, an integrated marketing agency, and Michael Edmond, account executive and management liability practice director at Parker Smith and Fleek. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, before we begin, I definitely want to hear a little bit about each of you and your background. So I'm going to start with Kent. Can you tell me a little bit about you, your role, and how did you get involved in this industry? Yeah, I um, actually am using the degree I got in college. Unlike most of my friends, I have a business degree and a marketing concentration. So I actually run a business that is a marketing agency. So for the last 17 years, I've helped clients find their customers online. But part of that has always been a little bit of reputation building and or repair. So we have a lot of clients all over the country. But this is, uh, this is what I've been doing the last 20 something years. Can I ask why you like it? Uh, I like the measurability of the of the internet more so than the subjectivity of the design aspects. The creative is really fun and interesting, but I got it drove me crazy when clients wouldn't like a color of font. So I've stuck with search marketing and parts of social where it's really about the measurement side, which is far more objective. Awesome. What about you, Michael? Yeah, thank you. Uh, unlike Kent, I uh, did not use my degree, so I actually have the exact same degree as Kent, uh, but I've <laughs> never used my marketing degree. I guess I use it on a, a daily basis in my current job, but I had some family in the insurance industry, and a lot of people think of insurance as life insurance and things like that, and while those are uh, important pieces of risk management, I actually started uh, doing management liability, so I actually did kidnap and ransom insurance and Cyber, when it first kind of came out of the gates, when it was just basically a liability type coverage. And I was an underwriter for about a decade for a large uh, international 
carrier and then uh, made the change to the brokerage side about four years ago when I joined Partners with Feek. So when I moved on over here, they put me uh, in charge of the, the cyber practice along with another gentleman in our office. Excellent, excellent. Well, I can't wait to kick off today because this topic, believe it or not, is near and dear to my heart. Online reputation is huge for me. So I'm going to disclose, I have about 50,000 Twitter followers. I have about 6,000 LinkedIn followers. I don't do Facebook because it's my personal. I'm getting about 100 new LinkedIn followers a day, and I pay attention to what I'm doing online all the time. I mean, I am on there night and day, and I'm really, really careful on the messaging. So I'm so excited to talk about this and to also learn from you on how we can think about online reputation. So I'm going to do the first question actually to Kent. My question is, first of all, can you talk to us about what online reputation management is? Because I really don't understand it. Yeah, sure. So basically in the olden days of print and broadcast, your reputation would be sculpted by, you know, the media, PR, press folks, and it would just be in terms of press coverage mostly. And then the internet came along and search engines and Google. And basically your reputation is whatever's in the in the top 10, you know, search results for your brand. And right now it's for the last 10 years in particular, it's been a five-star economy, right? A reputation economy. It's your, your business is made or broken to a degree based on the number of stars next to you, the search results on Glassdoor is a common company killer. Or if you're in retail or restaurants, it's TripAdvisor or Yelp. So those kind of third-party sites where customers review your company, I have my own personal opinion about it, but some of them feel like it's just a blackmail business where they sell services to repair your reputation after they've ruined it. So that's my own personal impression of Glassdoor in particular, not mentioning any names. (laughs) <laughs> so so anyway, the idea is that you can sculpt and craft uh, a better story for the search engines, much like you would in the media in the old days of Hollywood, star, stars and starlets doing bad things, or today, it's still an issue. So there are a lot of ways to do it. We can talk more about that later. But the idea is that you use the tools you have to tell your story and convince Google that your version on your website and your social media and out in the media is more interesting than whatever is currently ranking for your brand that is less than desirable. Wow, uh, that is a lot to sort of take in. So I want to just build on that. And Michael, do you have any comments? And how would that also affect small businesses? I deal with small businesses every single day, one-person operation, 10-person operation, maybe 100 employees. How important is it for them when it comes to online reputation? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely vital. Uh, and, and Kent had a, a lot of great uh, comments there. You know, I, th- I think I go back to what my dad used to tell me. He said, you know, you don't put anything in, in writing that you don't want anyone else to, to read or see. And, you know, I fear for my two young girls that they are going to post something that's going to have a detrimental effect on them for their entire life because these things really don't go away, right? And so it's a little different than when we were coming up. And you mentioned all the followers you have and that type of thing. And I also do not have a Facebook for a variety of reasons. But I think it's just kind of a, a scary world we live in. And as Kent alluded to, you know, some of these online sites such as Yelp or Glassdoor or whatever, they're almost at the mercy of these uh, anonymous individuals that are hiding behind their computers to harm anything. And from a business perspective, that can be crippling, right? I mean, if you have a, a small mom and pop company that maybe hasn't jumped in with both feet 
onto an online presence and they they do and they say they post something that they shouldn't have or they link to somebody somebody's site they didn't have authorization to do you know those costs can add up really quickly and so I'll touch on it a little bit later but there's uh, there's certainly some insurance in place now that can help with those costs so it's it's really you have to ask yourself as a business owner can I budget for responding to a breach and the reputational damage that might come along with it so I think everything kind of goes back to how you plan for it. There's the cliche, it's not if, it's when, right? But I I think every company should basically assume that at some point they're going to be breached. And so it really comes down to how they plan for that, you know, their response to that breach. Oh, my gosh. I I have to tell you, I could probably spend hours talking to you about this. So I want to bring it into real-life scenario, right? So let's suppose... In fact, I know a real situation right now. I have someone I absolutely respect in their business environment. They do a phenomenal job. But when they're on social media, if for some reason you say anything about their sports team, they will take you down. I am not kidding. I watch social media warfare going over a sports team. Now, I'm not a sports person, but I I wonder... Does that affect their reputation or not? Or do people just say, hey, you know, they're just a sports fan. This is not really affecting how they operate in the business world. Or do we have to pay attention to what you're saying from a personal perspective? And can that bleed into not only your reputation personally, but your corporate reputation? Thoughts? Well, I was hoping... uh Somebody else would chime in. So I would say there is there are issues. So one of my clients was BMW Portland, and the reason back when it was Rasmussen, and they hired us to help them with social media because of the very reason. They had a 25-year-old kid that was passionate about BMWs, but he was also young and native to social. So he would go to track days and hang out with the the enthusiasts, but then, you know, he'd be partying at night and posting pictures of himself with lampshade on his head or, well, you know, whatever. He's not a congressman. He's not that bad. But they, it was a very conservative organization. They were very uncomfortable with him representing their brand because they looked at him 24-7. Most BMW owners wouldn't go through the trouble to find who this guy really is. So they hired us to train their internal staff that were older 10-year veterans that it's easier to teach them social media than to teach a 25-year-old how to be an adult and to, <laughs> to, to understand that 30-year history of that dealership. So we trained different people and they definitely grabbed onto it, even though they didn't have uh, any previous real experience with social. And I think it worked really well for them. And then lithium bottom and that kind of just faded away. Wow. Uh, Michael, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I absolutely think there's a correlation to what you post privately or put onto your social media website, you know, like the Facebook or what, whatnot. And I think that certainly has a, a effect on your business potentially, right? I mean, it's kind of a, I've been using a lot of my dadisms to remember who you are and what you represent, right? Your reputation is only as good as, you know, your last action, I guess. And so if you're putting that lampshade in your head, um, you know, for for example, in the insurance brokerage, right, I'm sure if a client or a potential client saw me shotgunning a beer at a tailgate or something like that online, I don't know if they'd have the same opinion of me to handle some very important pieces of their business, right? And so uh, I think people need to be cognizant of the fact that nowadays they basically uh, can be, um, you know, whether it's filmed or whatever, I think it's just you're you're so open to 
potentially being outed or something for having this um, perceived lifestyle. So it certainly has an impact. And I always warn my clients to be cautious when you're posting about your sports teams or what whatnot and your political views, because that can certainly have an impact on your bottom line. Yeah. And I have to agree with both of you. In fact, what I tell my clients is unless you've been hired to represent that lampshade company, <laughs> do not be wearing that lampshade. <laughs> so I want to move on. Let's connect this to the world of cybersecurity because you know, this is why we're here. But obviously, as everyone knows, it plays a role in so many facets of business. So talk to me about the kind of damages that may come about from a hack or a cyber attack. And, you know, there was a mention, Kent, you said, you know, about the Yelp reviews and trip advisors. I'm assuming they're all legitimate reviews, right? Or I could be wrong, which is why you're the expert and I'm not. So can you walk us through maybe a hacking or cyber attack scenario as it relates to online reputation and some things we want to pay attention to? So one of the examples I use, I I teach a three and a half hour social media workshop at SCORE once a quarter. And one of the examples I use is, you know, of Anonymous, right? The hacker group, they hacked into Pfizer's Facebook page using one of their employees' really poorly protected Facebook profiles. And so they basically educate everybody saying, this guy is an idiot. He didn't protect his password, didn't have a good password. So we hacked in and they rebuilt the Facebook page to be what I would call sales prevention Everything bad if Pfizer's ever done was on that Facebook page. Maybe some things they didn't do. Who knows? But it was extremely damaging. But then there are bigger issues that I touch on, like just training and administration. So you have, you know, when Kenneth Cole fired their intern that ran social media, before they left, they went on a rant on social media about how terrible the company was and this and that. And they didn't have access to the platform. They weren't managing it well. So it can be employees. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be anonymous. It doesn't have to be a hacker group. But the reason I brought up like a Glassdoor situation is, oh, your brand is really suffering on Glassdoor. You know, let's help you or Yelp will do the same thing. I will mention a side note. It's somewhat off topic, but it's so it is on topic, but it's, it's such a good read. Earlier this week, Vice put out an article by a guy that used to get paid to write fake reviews in the UK for restaurants. And he saw how effective it was. So he decided, can I get my shed that I live in behind a house with no address, number one on on Travelocity or TripAdvisor for number one restaurant in London out of 20,000 restaurants. And it took him six months and he did it without having any food or any customers. So it is fake reviews, but it somehow was never triggered by their anti-spam you know, different people, different IP addresses over time. And at the very end, it's, it's a great read. I, ha- I highly recommend you guys check it out, is to read how he did it. It's like play by play. And then he served a ridiculous meal of microwave meals to people that had waited six months to eat there. And uh, he had live chickens. You pick your chick, you know, like, which one do you want based on your mood? And like, he just tried to make it difficult for them and they all wanted to come back. So it's a great story, but that's, that's, that's not a hacking thing, but it shows that system can be gamed. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, we have to go, you know, to, to a quick break. But now that we've at least established the first thoughts and conversations around foundational online reputations towards modern businesses, let's talk next about what happens when those foundations are tested by a cyber attack.
support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. Welcome back to Cybercast Oregon. I'm your host, Kedma O. I am the director for the Small Business Development Center based in Oregon, and we support 19 centers around cybersecurity. Today's topic, online reputation management and the fact of cyber threats. The constant cycle of headlines warning against system weaknesses, data breaches, and information theft seem serious. But what kind of cyber attacks should businesses be worried about? What are the biggest security gaps and what happens when a hacker slips through? Joining us to help us sort through the implications of all of this, Josh McKinney, Chief Information Officer at Edge Networks, and Spencer Hill, Principal at the Portland Company, a digital marketing company. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Well, first I want to begin. Josh, why don't you share a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got into this? Sure. So I've been in the industry, the IT industry, in one way or another for close to 20 years. Large amount of that in cybersecurity. I've spent time in IT and security for some pretty major Fortune 500 and even 100 companies. So I spent a a large amount of my cyber career working out at Nike in Beaverton in senior management over an operational team that maintained and managed 80,000 endpoints for Nike globally. So Most of my cyber career was kind of bred from there, but I've worked in security for various other companies as well, including government entities. So Lockheed Martin, United Parcel Service, United States Chamber of Commerce, to say the few. So I have a pretty decent background in IT and and cybersecurity as a whole. What do you love about it? What do I love about it? It's kind of a love-hate thing, right? (laughs) I think ultimately, but what I love about it is kind of something similar to what Kurt mentioned earlier, the the objectivity of when you realize or understand there's a threat or a vulnerability, there almost always is some sort of solution to uh, adopt or a flavor of solutions that can address that issue. And if it doesn't, then you iterate through it. So I enjoy the just the, the process of being a defender, right? So in being out there and working towards, you know, the greater good, which is keeping privacy at the forefront, keeping businesses safe, keeping individuals safe. That's kind of a passion of mine. So that's what I love. I I won't talk about what I hate about it. (laughs) We'll skip that part. Well, I'm smiling because if you see any of my feeds, I dress up as a real superhero, right? Oh, yeah. All my keynotes. I have K on the back. That's right. That's right. I wear all my custom capes and I talk about what superheroes are every day. And you just spoke like a superhero. You just made those words. I said, that's a superhero behind the scenes trying to make everyone safe. So thank you. Thank you. Spencer, what about you? So my background's in digital marketing, a lot of website development, uh, Google AdWords, uh, analytics management, that type of stuff. The security side of things comes in when we're deploying a web server for a new client or dealing with remediation type work for clients who are coming to us from an experience where they were hacked or compromised or something along those lines. These days, I do a lot of the strategy. I used to get my hands dirty and do the actual server deployments and coding the sites and those kinds of things. Nowadays, I'm directing our teams to develop these servers and consider what are the best practices, how can we improve this, but it's all in the context of small businesses, so we're not dealing with, like Josh, on the Intel scale. Yeah. Why do you love it? It's 
constantly changing. I, I like chess, and one of the things <laughs> I like about chess is that everybody you play against gives you a different game. It feels like a different way of experiencing it, and I think that clients in the area of uh, you know marketing, website development are very similar. They have a lot of different needs and uh, give you different problems to solve. I have to smile. I'm a chess player, and I always teach. <laughs> I do. I teach in business um, that you know chess players are trained to look at strategy, and they make no mistake, their decision may look like it's immediate, but they've already thought of the steps five steps before. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of strategy built around that. So I really appreciate that that statement. Well, let me jump right in. And really, this goes to either of you. And I'm always so fascinated with just the behavior behind hackers. You know, I just, I want more and more to understand them. But can you walk through some of the methods that hackers are using these days to get past our defense systems, you know, to get past everything that we're being trained to do to protect our companies? Josh? Sure, I can take that. So, you know, I think the the most prevalent threat out there right now is, is email campaigns, right, around targeting the end user, right? So that, that's in the growing sophistication that is, is kind of around that media or that, that way that they go out and, and kind of try to get some folks to, you know, click. So whether it's a phishing campaign or spear phishing or whaling, all these terms we throw around all the time, they are becoming more and more sophisticated. I think the, and I, I might go a little bit beyond your question. I don't want to ruin your other <laughs> no, ones. No, go ahead, but, please. Um, from my observations, particularly in 2016, 2017, what we've kind of seen is an evolution in malware and in, in kind of the sophistication in which hackers attempt to expose vulnerabilities. One of those ways is kind of moving away from exploit kits, right? And I want to, I want to try not to get like super geeky because I know I'm going to get like technical people are going to be like, what is, hold on, I haven't Googled the last thing you said. No, but, but, uh, you know, essentially a legacy method of dropping malware or something on a system was kind of around using these things called exploit kits, which use a large amount of actually readily available tools on operating systems. So like Windows PowerShell, for example, those sorts of things were were used as a part of these exploit, ki- uh, exploit kits. But what's happened is they've kind of evolved and went away from these kitted attacks. And they've kind of said, you know what, we're going to attempt to attack a system trying to not drop a binary or not drop a file on someone's system. What if I could expose a vulnerability inside of your mail program or inside of your office program or inside of your Adobe reader application and not actually have to drop a piece of binary on your hard drive, but execute on something that's already running on the system. That's what we're seeing more today, which is going to evade a lot of the traditional antivirus solutions that are out there today. So like the signature-based scanning, if you've heard of those before, right? The old school way of scanning for, for viruses it will evade those types of things, run inside of existing processes and execute vulnerabilities against that process. And your McAfee or your Symantec will have a big, nice, pretty green check mark when it happens. So I, I think that's the most dangerous thing is, is, is the sophistication of the bad actors in, in, what, in what they're doing to kind of evolve their process, right? As the defenders, as I call us, <laughs> we work to constantly evolve our processes, get smarter, try to outwit the, the bad actor, guess what? They're doing the same thing, right? So they're also using sophisticated ways to attack as well. So I think that's the that's the biggest thing that's kind of scary right now, if you will, or the thing that's hot right now. And it'll only get worse in the coming years. 
It's like a movie, like superheroes versus villains, mm-hmm. right? And yes. you're, you're fighting this war. Spencer, what's your thoughts? My perspective comes a little more indirectly. The things that I see that are the biggest threats are things like developers or development teams or agencies that really have no understanding of security, in particular, the, the principles of security. So I see a lot of agencies or developers say, oh, the thing that we have to do is secure passwords. And that's a semantic thing. That's, you know, something that is kind of a no-brainer. And if you valued the principles and understood the principles of security, that would be something that wouldn't be news to you. So I think that's one of the biggest threats. Uh, We see a lot of websites that are compromised out of the box because basic security principles aren't understood or implemented. I also think inadequate redundancy or like a mitigation strategy. So to say, what do we do if the site gets attacked? Do we have a backup? What if the backup gets compromised? You know, how quickly can we re-implement that? Those types of things I think are also really significant. And then just in general, people just not putting in proper checks and balances for who has access to their web server or their website, or if they have a Google Analytics account or AdWords account, you know, those types of things that go a long way in preventing a wide range of threats that are more that are more direct. You know, and, and I'm going to be very careful how I ask this next question because I don't want it to be perceived in, in any negative way. But this comment, Josh, you men- mentioned bad actors. Are these bad actors outside of our company or could they be inside of our company? <laughs> Good question. Ouch. That answer is, yeah, they, they can be anywhere, right? The insider threat is definitely one that folks need to be afraid of. But you know what? That is the case. It's been the case for a long time, right? Before the world of, of the prevalence of the internet, if somebody was inside your company and they wanted to embezzle, right, if they wanted to do something bad, they could do it fairly easily. And why? It's because they have a higher level of access, higher level of trust, right? Integrity is assumed. In today's world, especially with folks jumping around in jobs as often as they do, I have a lot of friends that make the hops between Amazon and Google and anywhere, right? Uh, they, they jump around, they spend a year somewhere and they jump on. I think you have, with the internet and the way it is today, in social media and the availability of information, I think it's eroded loyalty with folks and their employer for various reasons or another. And when that's happened, you, you do have the potential for people to become kind of bad actors or turn themselves into a hacktivist. You know, if you've heard that recent term, mm-hmm. hacktivist, right? Maybe they kind of decide, you know what? Amazon is not doing things the way that they're supposed to. And, and I've complained over and over and over again, and I'm, I'm just tired of it. And I'm going to expose it for myself. Where does that stuff come from? It comes from like the roots of things like, you know, folks at the NSA, for example, we've heard the stories of people leaking classified information mm-hmm. that they shouldn't have. It's, it's kind of started from that where folks are kind of saying, you know what, I'm going to sound the horn since the folks, the, the corporate folks don't care to, uh, to want to do anything about it. When you, when you have that kind of situation, yeah, you are leaving yourself open to some potential insider threats. The outside threat also is, is real as well. It tends to be, depending on exactly what it is, a larger net that they throw. But on the insider threat, of course, it's going to be most likely a targeted attack, something that exposes something that, you know, they feel passionate about and, and, and you know, they think somebody should be doing something about, but they're not. Wow. Well, that's uh, excellent, excellent points. So I want to see if either of you can walk me through a real life cyber attack scenario, maybe quickly what happened, but more importantly, 
How quickly did the company figure it out that there was an attack and resolve it? And maybe how did they resolve it? So there's a couple of questions in that. It's what was the scenario? How long did it take for them to figure it out? And how, how did they resolve it? What was the best practices behind it? Spencer? I think Josh will probably have more interesting stories than me, but <laughs> I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> uh, how many of them do I want to discuss on the radio? That's the question. Yeah. I can give uh, an example from um, last year. We had somebody that came to us, and they were a medium-sized business. They made dollars by the minute with their site, and they came to us and said, we were with such and such company, and suddenly we not only have lost complete control and complete access to our site as far as we can tell, but our site is down and it's been replaced with such and such things. And we're losing uh, you know, money by the minute. So you know, we went in, we gathered all the contact information that they had, credentials and things to access their site, and we kind of evaluated what are the possible, what are the most probable ways that the attack came in? And more, most importantly, how do we get access? And I think in that case, what we ended up doing was they still had access to their domain name, although they had lost complete access to their website a server and the related files. And so we ended up redirecting it away to a temporary site and locking down their, their DNS and their domain credentials. And then eventually got access to the server through you know, a roundabout security hole. And long story short, we just found that they had no plan. They had no, as I mentioned earlier, no mitigation strategy, virtually no redundancy. Their backups were infected. The server was infected. And in the end, we narrowed it down to basically two, one of two ways that the attack could have came in through. And the fact that it was that wide open that we could, even after filtering through everything, we could still see more than one way that this attacker came in was a serious problem. That was just two of the most probable ways. So, you know, in that uh, situation, it was ultimately an SQL injection through their some forms on their website and uh, possibly an uh, insecure password for their server administrator who had root access to the entire server. Wow. Yeah. Especially password protection key. Well, I think you uh, did a good job on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I could tell some stories, but, you know, they're, I don't know. I tend to not like to divulge details, yes. um, and I try to keep it as general as possible. But that was a pretty good story. I was going to speak to maybe the Target breach or the Home Depot breach, right, if you guys have heard about that. Those were some pretty, pretty big uh, breaches, Target in particular, which exposed a lot of, of credit card numbers um, and, and, and cost Target a lot of money over, I think it was $200 million or more by the time it was done. That breach started through a third-party vendor of theirs, an HVAC provider, right? So they had an HVAC provider that had access to Target systems, and they would go in and do their invoicing and such for Target through the work that they did across all the stores. Those third-party credentials were compromised and allowed what's called east-to-west or, or walking through the, the network of Target from that remote desktop instance for that third-party provider. And that's how that point-of-sale breach started so it started from this simple jumping in through this third-party provider, making their way through uh, actually fairly fortified network for Target. They actually did a pretty good job to fortify their payment cross-processing environment. That hacker or that group was unable to penetrate that space. So they regrouped because this was a sophisticated attack. They regrouped and they said, you know what, I can't get credit card data at the SQL server. They owned the SQL server. They were able to see the data 
but Target didn't place the data after it was processed inside the SQL server. So it was a dead end for them. But they did get about 70 million customers' PII information, right? So they were able to get, you know, first name, last name, addresses, phone numbers, those sorts of things from the SQL server. Dead end for cards. So what they did was change their approach. And what they did was they focused on the point of sale systems themselves, right? And they said, okay, let's figure out what we can get to on the point of sale systems. The, a small detail that folks really don't know about this is what happened was they essentially ended up, and you can stop me if you want, but no. they essentially ended up finding a local administrator password on the point of sale systems that had a default password. And they were able to log in on that through that process. And from there, they were able to find and, and plant some malware that they were able to extract the credit card data out of memory as it was passing through the card reader to the point of sale system itself. So when that card gets swiped, that data gets loaded into memory. They had what's called a memory scraping capability, and they pulled the scrape. And when they did, they pulled the credit card number and the track two information from credit cards from that. Millions of cards. To your question earlier, that threat was in the environment for 209 days before it was discovered. Wow. So long time, right? In that situation, they were able to move through this network in a way that, you know, and again, you know, the, the, the client or, or target, they didn't have poor security in place. They actually did fairly good job here and there. They just missed some key critical spots. And those were enough. And the reason I'm mentioning this is I want to highlight the bad actors talking about the bad actors, the bad actors, when they do a sophisticated advanced persistent threat or an APT attack, they customize that attack towards whoever they're going for. Once they get in an environment and they move around, they take the time to figure out how to discover the network and figure out how to get in. And when that's the case, when you're dealing with an advanced persistent threat, you're dealing with a real, this bad, this person you're talking about who's in the basement or whatever. It's actually usually not that. It's actually someone who's probably actually highly intelligent, resourceful, capable, or a team of them. And they will customize an attack towards a client when they deem it necessary. And they were able to get away with those card numbers and exfiltrate that data out of the network. Oh, I have so much I could say, but I have to go to break. I will okay. ask one comment. Maybe we could talk moving forward. Next one is, if they're so intelligent that they can hack into a organization like Target, why wouldn't we hire them? Good question. Sounds like there's more than enough money and motive in the game for hackers to keep hacking and more than enough danger to keep businesses wary. But sometimes just knowing about a threat isn't enough. Next segment, let's talk about what happens when a company's online reputation takes a hit from the hack. I'm Kedma O. I am your host on Cybercast Oregon. I'm with Mountain Community College and also support the 19 small business development centers in Oregon around cybersecurity. Today, we are having an exciting conversation looking at the world of cybersecurity through the lens of reputation, how damaging hacks and security breaches are to businesses big and small. 
Now let's do a close-up of what's happening on the ground when a company actually gets hacked and what can be done to save face. Joining us with stories and solutions, Kent Lewis of Anvil Media and, of course, Josh McKinney from Edge Networks. Welcome back to the show. Hello again. Hello. Are, are you both having fun? I am just thrilled over here. Yeah, I'm trying to, I need more water, actually. because I. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Wow. Well, I am having a blast. And what I love about this is we're having real conversation, real scenarios, real time. And it's going to the heart of so many questions and thoughts happening and people are listening to. And especially because of the last segment, we talked about a large organization like Target. And if Target can't seem to protect themselves with situations like that, we as small businesses have to pay attention. So I'm going to kick it off. And I want to sort of get an idea of how do these attacks actually damage the reputation? So if we took Target, for example, was their reputation harmed as a result of the breach? And let's talk about the money piece. I mean, did they see investors or any kind of financial impact resulting from this this reputation impact? Josh? So absolutely, yes. You know, the reputation was impacted. That breach occurred, you know, four years ago, but it still is talked about today, particularly in the cybersecurity community, right? Today's a perfect example, <laughs> right? It's it's one of the biggest ones, right? So so there, it's going to be talked about forever, you know, remember some of the largest breaches ever, you know, and, and how they affected the retail sector specifically, right? We can talk about Yahoo, for example, and the fact that they had in, in 2013, 3 billion accounts were compromised. They originally reported 1 billion, but it was actually 3 billion. So that's a really big difference, isn't it? But yeah, it's a really big difference. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Oh, their reputation does get damaged. And that's something that I think takes a long time to, to kind of you know win back, win those customers back. You can release as a company, hey, we did all the techie things we had to do to make sure that something like this would never happen again. And most of those things just go right over the head of the consumer, right? The consumer is going to err on the side of caution and say, you know what? I don't know that my data is safe with Target or Home Depot or Equifax, Mm -hmm. right, or Mm -hmm. anyone. And that does, I think, have lasting impact on your brand, particularly with the Home Depot breach. I know a lot of people that told me, you know what, I'm going to go to Lowe's because Lowe's hasn't had any incidences of information disclosure. Or a buddy of mine that told me right after the Target breach, he went to return something from Target and they asked him for his ID. And when they asked him for his ID, he was like, wait a minute, I don't want to give you my ID because I don't feel confident that you're going to be able to keep my information private. So what does that what does that say? How does that speak to your reputation, particularly somebody who's very social media connected and, and likes to speak online about how they feel about retail experiences? Wow. So. wow. Yeah, I didn't I didn't look up the exact numbers, but I think what hit short term it would be stock price. And I'm not sure I we should look up the trending for the last four years. People do have short memories, but I don't think about it when I walk into a Target, but I also almost never walk into a Target anyway. There's the legal lawsuit part that is probably... He runs runs into a Target. Yeah, and I run right back out with a bunch of stuff and credit card information. Um, But they have... uh, There's a legal lawsuit side that can take years to resolve, lost customers, and then additional, obviously, rebuilding the infrastructure, training, all that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big cost, but 
from my world of mitigating search results, so taking out, it's the how do you mitigate and push down all that coverage four years ago? It's really, really hard. The media sites are very well trusted by Google. They may not be trusted by current administration, but they are trusted <laughs> by Google. So it's really hard to do that. So, you know, what I've coached, like um, BP, I use as, you know, that's what, a decade ago. But the example I use is there's there's three steps that I train my clients when they've done something unfortunate. And I'm not in the turd polishing business. I, if <laughs> Everybody makes mistakes, but if it's if it's part of their culture, I'm not going to help them. But the first thing that brands have a real hard time doing is owning it. So Yahoo did a terrible job of, I think the first number was like 250 million. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, billion. Oh, my bad, 3 billion. Mm-hmm. And then they're running out of people on the planet. So they own it. <laughs> and then and companies don't do that well. Fixing it, they typically do that better. But I assume when you're a target, at some point, it's a, mo- a matter of time. It's an if, it's a when, not an if. Mm-hmm. And then the make good, how are you going to make good? So Equifax did a brilliantly terrible job of making good with our information, right? They were going to basically, I'll give you a free credit report, but when you do that, you're going to lose your ability to sue me. And they obviously got called out on that. I mean, it's the most ludicrous thing. They have one job and they couldn't do that one job. And then they want to make us pay for it. So classic. So, you know, that's a fairly evil corporation in terms of how they handled it. So that that's quite common. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I, I agree. And I, I think to answer part of your first question, too, there, there is no, and to your point, there's no real way, I think, to like quantify what the actual dollar loss mm. is when you talk about a branding, mm. a, a brand, right. right? Having worked for some of the biggest brands in the world, I would tell you that a lot of the leadership, I, you know, I, particularly at one that I won't mention, a, a lot of them have said, you know, having even, even one single social media dig on your product can cost potentially millions of dollars in brand reputation that you maybe don't get back, or maybe if you do get back, it takes a long time to get back. And I think you're right. People do have short-term memories, particularly the younger generation. Literally the next day, it's like whatever. But the, the thing that's interesting to me is if if it resonates within their demographic or, or within the, the group of people they're at, it's kind of one of those things like, yeah, Target sucks. We're not going to do Target anymore. Okay, yeah, Target's done. And in their mind, it's like, I won't do Target anymore. Mm-hmm. Target is not something I will consider anymore. And then it just kind of builds from there. And it's like, Target, ew. You know, I have a 14-year-old daughter, you know. <laughs> I, I hang around these kids, you know. It's kind of like, oh, wow, I can't believe, you know, such and such brand did this or whatever. Yeah, we're done with them. And you know this probably better than anybody. I mean, you can, you can destroy a business from something like that, right, oh. in today's – and, you know, hence the reason for the conversation. You can, you can destroy a business with that kind of thing. And it's the youth. I think it's the younger kids, right, that are, that are kind of pushing that. I don't know if it's always the case, but in my view it is just being surrounded by preteens and teens all the time now with my kids I have. It's just <laughs> like it seems, you know. That's because you have four kids. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. You're bringing up so many things, and I have to smile because, you know, if Target's listening, I happen to love you, Target. I shop at Target a lot just because I have three boys, but it really speaks to your point on trust Mm -hmm. and when do you sign off and say no. I'm going to throw in something that's, I'm just really curious, so you may not have the answer, but as we talk about reputation and we talk about retail, how does this actually play a role If your company is responsible for lives, now let me explain. 9-11, each of us were somewhere. If I said to you, where were you at 9-11? Every one of you will tell me that moment. So given that we're seeing these bad 
hackers becoming more and more sophisticated, do we as a society have a threat where they could hack in when an airplane is heading from Portland to Chicago? Um, And I'm not here to scare anyone, but I want to know the answer. Like, how serious can this go, especially if a company is responsible for lives? Josh? Wow. Ooh, that's a good, <laughs> that is a good question. You don't know if I know the answer. I don't know if I do either. I, I guess I would have to get pretty deep in it. And I guess I would maybe say, you know, there's this saying that goes around that security is, is not a technology problem. It's a human resolution. So and, and really what that means to me is that there's a ton of technology in place and there's a ton of policy procedure that people know about that you can go out and implement. And if you implement those things properly, you make it very hard to impossible to do some things. With that being said, most of the time it ends up being the human element, right? Which is something I talk about a lot when I speak at colleges and such about security is, is the human element. And what I mean by that is there's, to me, there's kind of three areas of human development or human development, the human element. Yeah, let's talk about human development. <clears throat> we can, I can talk about many, many things. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, the human element, there's three sides. So there's the side that I'm focusing on for this particular conversation is the defender side. So there's a human element there as well. So you have the security solution, right? If you don't implement the security solution properly, then it's going to not be effective. Does that make sense? So at the end of the day, humans involved, right? You have these security things. You have automation. Automation is because of humans, right? They're created by humans and because of humans. So at the end of the day, it's the human element there. But the other side is also the end user, right? So the end user human element, you need to protect yourself from things potentially damaging you or you, your data getting breached, you getting compromised, et cetera. The reason I brought that up is to, to say you brought up the airplane scenario. Mm-hmm. If you implement the security properly, and what I mean by that is you, if you have true segmentation and you have air gapping, right, meaning that networks do not, cannot physically connect to each other or virtually connect to each other, you make it very, very difficult for that area to be compromised. That sort of technology is in use, at, for example, our, our U.S. power grid. So there's a SCADA network, right, is, is what they use if you've heard of SCADA before. SCADA is almost always an air-gapped network, meaning you come into work and you, you, you work at that company. Whatever networks you reside on, none of those actually have physical connectivity to the SCADA network, which is the network that actually runs that environment. So the way that you compromise that, in, that environment is you, you need to have physical access, right? So, and, and if you have physical access to that network, then there's other security technologies in place, things like two-factor authentication biometrics, you know, physical security, right? Those things in place to protect against those things. In an airplane, the the concept is similar where the airplane controls should be air-gapped from anything that could potentially connect to them from like, for example, you're on the airplane and you're on GoGo Internet, right? Yes. <laughs> Are you worried about GoGo Internet having yes. access to the airplane controls? I, and, and, and that answer is that's that's not possible. The way they architected it, those two networks are air-gapped, meaning they do not have the capability to talk to each other. So um, in in every case I've ever heard of, if there if there is something where GoGo has connectivity to the flight control networks, we, we got an issue there, right? That's a problem. But the the likelihood is that they're air-gapped and they, and they don't have. So so that kind of thing is 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 lower. Could they, could they do something from the outside in, you know, at the end of the day, humans are amazingly creative, Mm -hmm. amazingly 
just engineers that are capable of coming up with crazy things. So is it possible? Yes. Could they hack it from a satellite? Maybe. Could they use a laser to, you know, overheat a module that's, you know, inside the fuselage and make it all be set up? Sure. You know, Stop I giving mean, ideas. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. It's just not, it's the wrong you, segment. You get the point, right? It, it's, it's, you know, we are amazingly innovative and we are amazingly brilliant uh, people and, can use that for good or we can use that for evil, right? Yeah. And actually the simple reason I brought it even up was because every time I get on the plane, they say, shut down your cell phone because it can interfere. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if it can interfere, what else can it do? And so that's what really- good question. Right. It's what prompted the question. So if we built on- By the way, I've never heard of an airplane crashing due to uh, (laughs) somebody's cell phone in the back causing interference. (laughs) I'm just calling that out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, but here's a good point. So if we took the analogy of the airlines, and Kent, I want you to sort of bring us back on around the reputation. You know, I've flown many airlines, and in particular, one airline, I just won't fly again because they- they don't care about me anymore. So my question is, is they have lost me as a customer. And the only time I'll fly them is if I have to. Kent, knowing what I've just disclosed, how would you get me back? How would you tell them, you know what, you really need Kedma back because she is, she's going to be influential in a few years and you need to find a way to get her back. How would you win me over? In a few years (laughs) after this show. (laughs) It's It's funny you bring that up because I was flying an airline that sounds like untied. And I, (laughs) due to weather coming back from New Orleans, I got stuck in Denver and I just missed my flight. And I had so, I had zero status with them, but I didn't understand up in the air hadn't come out yet. I didn't understand the frequent flyer thing. (laughs) And so I basically, all the hotels were booked in Denver because the whole airport was stuck there. And I was not going to miss my next flight. So I slept behind the counter. But I think what they need to do is, it just acknowledge you as a person and use all the database marketing capabilities to get you just back in, but they have a bigger problem. It's their culture, right? They pretend to care and they don't. So until they change the culture, getting you back on deals isn't necessarily going to be good enough. So they're going to have to change everything about themselves. And there's six airlines or four airlines now. There used to be 20. They, they have a, a monopoly. So it's a tough, it's a tough game. You know, just to extend on that a little bit, I mean, I think you're totally right. And I think this is maybe a different way of saying everything you just said, but a transparency, right? Transparency, I think, is key to winning customers back, showing that a major brand can have a genuine connection with an individual who had a problem with their company. Imagine that, right? You have a company with a $300 billion market cap and this company is saying, hey, at Mike1234, we're sorry that happened and we want to make it right, right? Having transparency and saying, hey, we messed up, let's make it right, or just even addressing or acknowledging that person. It's huge. Um, it's almost like it puts a check in your mind and you're like, okay, this company actually cares about people. You say, listen, you know, we know that there are issues or challenges with our X, you know, product or our service or whatever, and we want to make it right and we're committed to you know, here's a website that we threw up. We want feedback, you know, or send us, you know, something on our Twitter feed. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know how we can improve. We want to make it better. That goes just a mile long, I think. And it's really... not even that hard. But to your point, and we're going to go to a break, it's really tack. It's really transparency, authenticity, and consistency. That's what we're looking mm-hmm. for. So it's no easy feat to rebuild a damaged reputation. We all know that. That's what we've been talking about today. And it's best when you don't have to. Stay tuned in our final segment. 
We'll talk about defensive strategy companies can use to stay one step ahead of the cyber threats. Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. Welcome back. The best way to not have to clean up after a cyber attack. Have a cybersecurity plan. This is Cybercast Oregon, and I'm your host, Kedma O, and we are closing out this episode with practical advice for business owners wanting to stay safe from the malicious edges of the internet. With us now to talk prevention and preparation, welcome back, Spencer Hill of the Portland Company, Michael Edmonds of Parker, Smith & Fleek, and of course, Josh McKinney from Edge Network. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Are you guys having a good time? We're we're having a blast. (laughs) I'm learning a ton. Real brain trust here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we we covered so much in terms of reputation and and some of the big companies. Let's let's talk a little bit about preparation. You know, first from a technical standpoint, and then maybe from a PR view, if it's possible to help mitigate some of these events that we're seeing, especially, I always tell my small business community, pay attention to the big companies, pay attention to what they're doing so that you can prevent some of the things happening. So I'm going to pull in uh, Michael and say, in your opinion, what are some of the best practices for today for businesses to avoid some of the things we're talking about? Yeah, I would say uh, cash in, sell the company, buy a little cabin <laughs> in, in government camp or, or Hood River and Good for you. Good just for become you. A, a kite surfer or something. But no, honestly, you know, I don't think there's any way you can completely, there's no silver bullet per se, to safeguard against all these, these new threats that come along with business today. And so I just try to coach my clients to have a plan, identify who the key stakeholders are across all your business units. Make sure that it has a piece or a place on the board of directors next agenda because it really is a board level issue at this point. And then make sure that whoever it is that is, you know, on call or whatever at that point when, when they determine there's an issue that they can pick up this plan that you developed and basically walk through it without having to, you know, understand what, you know, SCACA or binary, all these other terms that <laughs> my my smart uh, colleagues here are, are bringing up but you know I, I just try to tell them look it's it doesn't matter if you are target or your fortune 500 company or if you're a, a small law firm or or whatever I mean, if you have an online presence or if you have data or, or information on your employees prospective employees or your clients you're at risk of having some significant costs associated with the breach of that information. So I just try to give them all the relevant information and connect them with experts like these individuals and really just give them a, a, a clear picture of, of all the risks that they potentially face. Spencer, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think that having a team of people that are focused on evaluating where your company stands in its security is critical to 
the long-term success. And just about everything else will fall in line if you have that kind of as that foundation, including on the PR side of things. Excellent. Josh, give me three points. If I'm a new business or maybe I am an existing business, but I don't have this broad knowledge. I don't have a Josh in my life. <laughs> Let's put it that you way. Should have a Josh I should have a Josh in my life. But you if you could give us your lens and say, what are three things I need to focus on in the next 90 days? Oh, wow. So in the next 90 days, sure. Three things. I'll try my best to do it <laughs> in the format that you just asked. But you know what? I really think it, it, it comes down to, and like I mentioned before, that, you know, when I speak at events or when I, I speak at colleges, I always I focus on the human element. I think your next, your first 90 days or your next 90 days needs to be a couple things. So number one, know, know your risk, right? Which is kind of what Michael alluded to earlier. Understand and, and know where the critical pieces of information are in your network, where the critical pieces of you know intellectual property are or whatever on your network. Know what they are. The second thing I would say to do is, and, and this is something I come across a lot. You know, I spoke a lot about my enterprise experience, but I also have a lot of small business experience as well, having uh, worked for managed services providers in the past. And what I've come across is that cybersecurity can be an intimidating subject to like a business owner, right? And a lot of times what you'll what you'll see is that folks will always defer to their IT guy, right? Or their IT person, I should say, not disguise, right? <laughs> and they kind of say, you know, I don't know, security is my IT guy's thing. Go talk to him and they'll be able to 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 help you. A critical thing, and I think Michael touched on it as well because he mentioned the board. This is a board thing. It's so such a great point, Michael. Cybersecurity is a business problem. It is not a technology problem. It is not an IT department problem. It is a business problem. And you as a business owner need to understand that cybersecurity and the security of your company goes and ties directly to your business in the bottom line. So you as a business owner or a business leader, right, whether you're a CFO, a CIO, CTO, whatever you are, CEO, you need to ask the questions and don't fear asking the questions or, or be concerned that things are going to fly over your head, right? That's been kind of something that I've noticed in the past. Ask the questions. If you don't have to understand the tech speak, right, to understand how these things can affect your business and your bottom line. One example that I give usually is like, so let's say your IT guy says, hey, we need a new firewall, right? Now, you as a business owner, you have no idea what a, maybe what a firewall is. Maybe you have a general idea of what it is, right? But you're, you're kind of asking, well, why do we need to spend $1,000 on a new firewall? And he goes, oh, well, our databases are accessible from the internet. So we need a firewall to make sure that doesn't happen, Right. You as a business owner might not have any idea what he's saying, but you should be able to figure out, okay, wait a minute. Let's ask the question. What's in my database? Oh, this is our customer information, right? Okay, our customer information. What happens to my business if our customer information is accessible to anybody on the internet? Okay, I see the value now (laughs) of a firewall, right? I don't need to know what a firewall does. I don't need to know port protocol. I need to tie it to my business. Do not be afraid to ask and challenge the IT person around because you're going to do it anyway as a business owner right you always are going to say where am i going to get my budget where am i going to get the money for this solution but you have to be willing to ask the questions i think that was the second thing and i, I don't know if i have time to say like the third it's thing okay. <laughs> you have but, so much you could share and we want to save it for future ones <laughs> i have so many questions around this but i want to make sure that the audience is clear we're talking about bad reputation 
but there's also good reputation. So if I take my example, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you will know that I celebrate working for my college. Shameless plug. I, I, I'm yeah, going to call it out. I have to. Be, well, but, but I'm not shameless because if I don't like you, I'll call you out. You know, anybody who knows, oh, yeah, if I don't like you, you you'll you know really quick because I have to be authentic. No wonder she hasn't accepted my connection yet. No <laughs> I have to be accepted. But here's the truth. I'm not paid to sort of do this as part of online. I do it because I believe in the mission. I believe in my work with the Small Business Development Center. Here's my question to you guys. If I had a thousand employees working under me as the CEO, why would I not create an engaged every single one of those, many of them who are millennials, and empower them to go and share and speak about the company. I mean, you're talking about a thousand uh, people who could who could lift that organization up in a way that may be really difficult from all the advertising that they're spending on already. So what's your thought? Is that too dangerous? Or is there a space to actually empower employees to, to be on the ground to represent the company in the social media as part of their reputation? I think that can be really effective if you have a culture in your work environment that it's kind of along the lines of how everybody's a salesperson in the company. And I think that in that type of environment, if you're going to be successful with that, you have to have your leadership with coming to the rest of your staff with a strategy that makes sure everybody feels like they've got, they own something, they own part of the success of that business. Because when you do that, it's kind of a preventative strategy where if somebody is going to speak about the company, they have a stake in it. They care about the well-being. So they're careful about what they say. They're careful about what they share. Now, um, of course, if you were, if you literally had a thousand people working for you, you're like, hey, everybody, we want you to go do social media for us. <laughs> There's a million reasons. That's a terrible idea. But I do believe that having a strategy in those situations and giving people freedom to talk about the company and talk about the future of the company and why it's great to work there or, you know, whatever can be extremely powerful and extremely effective, you know, if you wield that correctly. Can I just throw in, yeah. I, you know, Nike realized that that wasn't something they could control, right? They kind of, they have no choice when you have, you know, 70,000 employees all over the world, they're going to be posting on social media, they're going to be showing their shoes and they're, you know, and they're going to be doing it morning, day and night. One of the things Nike asked was this that, you know, put on your personal stuff if you're going to do that to say, you know, my views do not represent Nike Inc. necessarily. I'm, I love the brand and this is me and my stuff, right? Kind of put that disclaimer on everybody's kind of thing and then, you know, kind of just let them go and have fun. You take the risk that some of them are going to potentially say some stuff that you don't like or do some things that you don't like. If that disclaimer is at the top of their social media profile, then, you know, the company can quickly and easily say, you know what, that wasn't us, right? So they get to get the good. And then if it's the bad, they can easily kind of push that away and say that wasn't something that we endorsed. So. And it sounds like we like Nike based on this conversation. We do like Nike. <laughs> I, I like Nike. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for today on Cybercast Oregon. If you missed any part of this episode or you want to listen to it again, which I'm going to do because it was so much fun, you can find the show on prp.fm and iTunes under Cybercast Oregon. We're going to be back in the new year, 2018, with fresh new episodes. And in the meantime, stay in touch on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you guys to connect. And until next time, have a great weekend and happy holidays to everyone.
Podcast Oregon is produced by Nastasia Boisen and hosted by Kedma O. Tech support by Austin Holm. Editing and music by Alistair Lee. This episode is made possible by Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center. Explore their workshops, online courses, and more at mhcc.edu sbdc. Our show is produced in the studios of Portland Radio Project. Check out prp.fm for more information. You can find previous episodes, extra content, and previews by following us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CyberCast Oregon. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.